You can get it online or buy it at Kurong. Good plug for Kurong. And uh, it doesn't matter when you start, you can fill in and uh, uh, read along. We're up to actually week 15, and we're talking about the return and restoration. Uh, the children of Israel have gone into captivity uh, in Babylon, and uh, about 70 years later, uh, God is going to bring them back. And we're going to look at that this morning. If you're reading through this week, just a page a day, uh, these are the topics you'll read starting today, and uh, we're going to cover some of this this morning in a summary format. So if you have your Bibles there, turn to Esther, the book of Esther, and chapter 4, and in just a moment we'll get uh, Ross to read that to us. So Esther chapter 4, if you can't find it, in the hard copy, there is an index in the front of your Bible. will give you a page number. And, of course, if you're on your phone, you can just type in Esther and it'll find it for you. All right, let me give you a little bit of a uh, background so you've got the setting. Okay, now I'm going to see if this works. Hang on. All right, there we go. Oh, hang on, I've got to drag it across, I'm told. Oh, it's very sensitive. Okay. Children of Israel were in Egypt in slavery way down here. Then through Moses, God brought them up. And then under Joshua, they came into the promised land. This is a little bit hard to control, Michael. <laughs> let's give that a miss. I think, uh, let's go back. They came into the promised land and they settled the land uh, under Joshua. And then came the period of the judges. And that's why those circles are there to illustrate the cycle of the judges, which was looked at uh, a few weeks ago now. And then they came the time or the period of the United Kingdom under three kings, uh, Saul and then King David and then King Solomon. And you can read about those in those books in the Bible uh, listed above them. So they came the United Kingdom. Then the kingdom divided into north and south, Israel and Judah. And uh, they began to forget God and what God had done, that he had rescued them out of slavery. And he had uh, brought them to the promised land. And uh, God had promised peace and protection if they'd follow and serve him. And if they worship foreign gods, he said he would, um, he would take the land off them and uh, push them out and send them into exile. They didn't listen. They disobeyed God. They started worshipping idols and foreign gods. God took the northern kingdom uh, into Assyria by the Assyrians. And then later the Babylonians came and took the southern kingdom. And we looked about that last week. And uh, they were in Babylonia. But God did make a promise that he would bring them back. Uh, even though they disobeyed him and God was disciplining them, punishing them. But he is a God of mercy and he would bring them back and restore them. Uh, to the land and so under the reign of the Persians when they became the world power their foreign policy was different to the Babylonians and so they returned and that's what we're going to look at the return of what's sometimes called the second exodus all right so uh, they were there in Babylonia Jews in Babylonia and uh, prophets God still spoke to them through Ezekiel and Daniel and um, then they came back and you can see the return line and prophets were in Jerusalem and spoke to them there. Haggai, Zechariah, Malachi also spoke to them when they came back to the promised land. And uh, the books that recount uh, this period of their history is the book of Esra or the book of Ezra. All right. And uh, two key words here, uh, because we read about two people we're going to look at today, is um, the rebuilding of the temple and the rebuilding of the people. 
And uh, the temple was rebuilt under the leadership of Zerubbabel, and the people were rebuilt or built up under the leadership of Ezra. So both stories uh, in the book of Ezra, and uh, key words are temple and people. Um, There were three returns, and the third return was under Nehemiah. Some say he was the shortest man in the Bible, Nehi. Maya? No, it's all right. That's a sick joke. That's a dad joke. Actually, there's a shorter man in the Bible. His name was Bildad the Shuhite. Yeah, anyway, don't worry about it. All right. So there's Nehemiah, and uh, he came back and he rebuilt the walls. So there's uh, three returns over a period of time. But not everybody returned from exile, and uh, many were still in Babylonia and the Persian kingdom. And uh, you can read about one of the stories there. And her name was Esther. She became the uh, queen of Persia. And uh, Esther, who was a Jewish, um, Jewess, and uh, we'll come, we'll focus on her at the close of what we're talking about today. So Ezra, uh, Nehemiah, and Esther are the books that you can read about uh, the return from exile. Okay, if you have your Bibles, Esther chapter 4. Thank you, Ross. just asked Pastor John what version he'd like, but he said he didn't mind, so I'm reading from this uh, New Century version. It's a good version, worth having a look at. Esther chapter 4. When Mordecai heard all about uh, that, that had... Sorry, can I start again, please? It's a hard-to-read version. No, it's not that, really. Esther chapter 4. When Mordecai heard about all that had been done, he tore his clothes put on rough cloth and ashes, and went out into the city crying loudly and painfully. Mordecai went only as far as the king's gate, because no one was allowed to enter the gate dressed in rough cloth. As the king's order reached every area, there was great sadness and loud crying among the Jewish people. They gave up eating and cried out aloud, and many of them lay down on rough cloth and ashes to show how sad they were. When Esther's servant girls and eunuchs came to her and told her about Mordecai, she was very upset and afraid. She sent clothes for Mordecai to put on instead of the rough cloth, but he would not wear them. Then Esther called to Hadash, one of the king's eunuchs chosen by the king to serve her. Esther ordered him to find out what was bothering Mordecai and why. So Hadash went to Mordecai who was in the city square in front of the king's gate. Mordecai told Hadash everything that had happened to him, and he told Hadash about the amount of money Haman had promised to pay into the king's treasury for the killing of the Jewish people. Mordecai also gave him a copy of the order to kill the Jewish people, which had been given in Susa. He wanted Hadash to show it to Esther and to tell her about it. And Mordecai told him to order Esther to go into the king's presence to beg for mercy and to plead with him for her people. Hatash went back and reported to Esther everything Mordecai had said. Then Esther told Hatash to tell Mordecai all the royal officers and people of the royal states know that no man or woman may go into the king in the inner courtyard without being called. There is only one law about this. 
Anyone who enters must be put to death unless the king holds out his gold scepter. Then that person may live, and I have not been called to the king for 30 days. Esther's message was given to Mordecai. Then Mordecai sent back word to Esther, Just because you live in the king's palace, don't think that out of all the Jewish people you alone will escape. If you keep quiet at this time, someone else will help and save the Jewish people. But you and your families, if your father's family will all die. And who knows, you may even be chosen queen for just such a time as this. Then Esther said to this answer to Mordecai, sent this answer to Mordecai, Go and get all the Jewish people in Susa together. For my sake, give up eating. Do not eat or drink for three days, night and day. I and my servant girls will also give up eating. Then I will go to the king, even though it is against the law, and if I die, I die. So Mordecai went away and did everything Esther told him to do. That's the word of the living God. Let's pray. Father in heaven, the one who inhabits eternity who always was and who always will be, the one through whom everything that is came into being and everything that is holds together by his power. It is to you we come this morning and worship. And at this Christmas time, we remember the good news that you came into this world in order to forgive and save sinners like us and restore us back into relationship with you, and we're so grateful for that. So, Father, we pray right now in your presence as we sit here this morning, we will hear from you through your word. You'll open our hearts and our minds to hear and to understand and to do whatever you say to us. And may everything we say and do bring honour and glory to you. And we ask it in the name of your Son, our Lord and Saviour, In Jesus' name. Amen. What I want to talk about is, Lord, will you help me play my part? Lord Jesus, will you help me play my part? Because we believe in the sovereignty of God, that God has a plan and purpose for his people... And God's purposes and plans will ultimately and finally be fulfilled. In the big picture, we look forward to new heavens and new earth. In the big picture, we look forward to that sin and Satan and death and hell will be destroyed and removed and we will live in a kingdom, living in peace and harmony with nature and with one another and in relationship with our God forever in a time that we just cannot hardly imagine. And God's plan and purpose was that would be made possible through the coming of Jesus. And for that to be made possible, it needed his people to be in their own land so that his Savior could come through a descendant of David, through a descendant of Abraham, through a descendant of Adam, as he had foretold thousands of years before, and that he would be born in a place called Bethlehem, that God had foretold. 
And through the coming of Jesus, salvation and forgiveness of sins would come to the whole world. But at this time, they were not in their land. They were in a foreign land in Babylonia. And God in his mercy was going to bring them back because he was preparing the way for the coming of the Savior, Jesus Christ. And for this return, it was going to involve and need a lot of people involved to make it all happen. Because the city was, in, it was destroyed, the town was destroyed, the people were discouraged, it was a mess. And so God was going to use a number of people to achieve his purposes. The question is, Lord, will you help me play my part? Because as we're looking back to what God was doing in his people thousands of years ago in the return, or sometimes called the second exodus, because the first exodus was when they came out of slavery in Egypt, and this was coming out of slavery or out of bondage or out of exile in Babylonia, often spoken of as their second exile. But God has a plan and purpose for his people and He continues to have a plan and purpose, too, for his people that we're a part of called the Church of Jesus Christ. And the question is, Lord, will you help me play my part? Because alongside of this, I want to challenge and talk to us about the idea of God's sovereignty and my response. Because any truth pushed to an extreme becomes error. And we must hold biblical truth in balance. And this is one area where we've sometimes pushed it to an extreme. That is, we believe that God is so sovereign that his will will be done. I totally agree. But if we push that to an extreme, we become like evolutionists and we actually believe that everything is determined. I can't help what I do because it's in my DNA if you're a true evolutionist. It's just, I'm dancing to my DNA. I'm just doing what I've got to do. I can't help it. It's not my fault. I'm not responsible. This is just how I'm wired up. And this is the way our society is going. So we're not personally responsible because, well, we're just evolving and that's just how we do it and we can't help it. It's not what the Bible teaches. But if you push God's sovereignty to a point, you come up with the same thing. Well, I can't choose to become a Christian. God has to just choose me. And I can't do this so much so that before the great missionary movement came back with um, Carey and others, uh, Carey who was saying, who's going to reach the Chinese people? Who's going to reach the Japanese? Who's going to tell the people in India about Jesus? And it, it was mainly in Europe at the time. Although it had been there before under previous apostles and then come back. And he went to see a minister, and the minister said, well, if God wants to save them in his sovereignty, he'll do. It's not our responsibility. You see, if you push sovereignty to an extreme, then everything is deterministic. I can't do anything about it. It'll just happen. God will just do it. Is that biblical? I would challenge you and say, no. Because in his sovereignty, God has chosen to create you in love. Did you catch that? In his sovereignty, God has chosen to create you in love, human beings in love. That's why in Genesis, you tree, tree of knowledge and the tree of life. That is, love demands choice. 
And he's created us in love. That means we are accountable and we are responsible. We can either choose to work in with his will or we can choose to deny and reject his will and do our own thing. We can choose to worship him or we can choose to worship ourselves. Ultimately, his purposes will be fulfilled, but your involvement in those purposes is your response, your love's response to his love towards you. So don't push it to such an extreme that there is no room for my response because in his sovereignty, he created us in love. It's like saying, when you push the God is all-powerful to an extreme, you say, so there's nothing God cannot do, then why doesn't he do X, Y, or Z? Well, God's power is also affected by God's character, and he cannot do anything that is outside his character. He must be consistent with himself. So let's look at God's sovereignty and my response as we Talk about the return and this question, Lord, will you help me play my part? They'd been in exile for 70 years. But God had made a promise through Jeremiah that after 70 years, they would be returned. And so Daniel starts to pray about that. Lord, you promised. And then they got excited, I would think, when they saw a new power coming because Babylonians foreign policy was to remove people from their land and stop them worshipping their God. When Cyrus came to power full, uh, over the Medes and the Persians and overtook Babylonia, his foreign policy was send people back to their homeland and let them and support them in worshipping their own God and get them to pray for me, whatever their God might be. And so an edict went out that God's people would return to their own land. It's interesting. We can't verify this, but... Uh, Um, Josephus, the Jewish historian, records that Daniel, who was in Cyrus's court when he took over, because he was in the Babylonian court, he was very high up, showed him Isaiah's prophecy that was written before Cyrus was even born, saying God would raise up Cyrus and he would make an edict to send his people back. And uh, Josephus, who is not a follower of Jesus, uh, recorded that Daniel uh, presented this and showed this to the king. We're not sure. Whatever he did, he made this decision uh, to send the people back. And so 70 years, about approximate, after their exile, they started to return. Not everybody returned. And about 50,000 went back in the first lot under the leadership of Zerubbabel. And then a later lot went back under Ezra. And then another lot went back unto Nehemiah, under Nehemiah's leadership. And some stayed. And we'll look at that. But the first one was Zerubbabel. And he comes back to build the temple. You'll notice that God's desire is to bring his people back to the promised land. But there is a number of things that need to be done. And he uses different people with different gifts and different backgrounds to achieve his purposes. Each of them had to respond to God's call in their life for that to be achieved. But God uses different people. For Zerubbabel, he is of the royal lineage. You can trace him back in the Jewish lineage. He's of royal blood. He's somebody important. With Ezra, he's a teacher. He's not of royal blood. And with Nehemiah... He's in public service, 
some would say he's a layman. He's a very smart uh, cookie organizing things. And God uses different people to help his people fulfill his purposes as they respond in love and obedience to him. And so we read about Zerubbabel. Then Zerubbabel, son of Shealtiel, and Joshua, son of Josedek, set to work to rebuild the house of God in Jerusalem. And the prophets of God were with them, supporting them. Any work of God, no matter how small or big, needs teamwork. There needs to be a leader, and Zerubbabel was that for the rebuilding of the temple. But he couldn't have done it without Joshua, the son of Josedek, and the prophets were also with them, supporting them in this work, and many others as they rebuilt the temple that was smashed down. And the same with any church, any people of God, building the work of God in any location. It needs leadership, but not everybody can be the leader. And it needs others who are willing to work alongside. It needs the Joshua, and it needs those supporting them. Everybody using their gifts and abilities together. And they finish building the temple according to, notice the two things here, the balance of sovereignty and and choice, the command of God and the decrees of Cyrus. The commands of God of Israel and the decrees of Cyrus. In God's word, these two things just go together. These people's personal responses and the sovereignty of God. It's not deterministic. And if they choose not, God still purposes will achieve. But as we see in Esther, he's saying, maybe you've come to such a time as this. But if you won't respond to it, God will raise somebody up. He'll fulfill his purposes. But will you have a part in it? That depends on your response. God's offer of forgiveness is for everyone. Many are called, but few are chosen. When you look at the word chosen in the Bible, it's a love to choose and commit yourself to someone. Many are called. The offer is that anyone may come. But I must respond to that invitation. It's not deterministic. If we push sovereignty to its extreme, then it becomes deterministic. And so people say, well, I haven't been chosen to be saved. No, will you repent and believe, is what the Scripture says, because many are called, but few respond to that call. And that demands us. And the same in ministry. God has a gift and a place for you in the life of this church. Will you respond to that? And will you be involved in that? So Zerubbabel comes back with Joshua and with the other people there and they rebuild, start to rebuild the temple. It goes well for a few years and then they get discouraged and despondent and they stop. Whenever God's work starts to move, the evil one will try and stop it. He will use whatever he can and very often it'll come from within as well as without to try and stop God's work. You can bet your life on it. You can go to the bank on that. As soon as God starts to move and people are getting saved and the church is moving, the church is growing, you can bet there'll come something, somewhere, to try and stop it, slow it down. And it happened, you can read it over and over again in the Scriptures. And so there was a 15-year where nothing was happening and then um, the prophets came again and started to encourage the people to finish the job that they'd started. And part of that encouragement of God's people, God raised up somebody else. His name was Ezra. And he comes back probably about 50 years after Zerubbabel. 
and uh, he comes back with another group of people from Babylonia. And God's purpose in his life was to use him to build up God's people, help them to get back to read God's word and obey it. Interesting, they built, Nehemiah helped build this platform for him, and he gets up and all the people are there, and we say, we read this, Ezra opened the book, that's the law. First five books of our Bible, he opened the book, and as he opened it, the people stood. In some churches, even to today, when the, you know, that's just just tradition, We, we stand to sing and sit to pray. Some churches stand to pray and sit to sing. Now you can find out which is biblical. Well, it's cultural, really. Some people stand for the reading of the word. They say this is the, and they get it from Ezra. Or from the book of Nehemiah, when Ezra opened the book, this is the holy word of God. And so in honor, everybody would stand as they would read it. And in some uh, traditions, they still do to this day. And they praised the Lord, the great God, and all the people lifted their hands and responded, Amen, Amen. Then they bowed down and worshipped the Lord with their faces to the ground. Then in Nehemiah 8, they read from the book of the law, making it clear and giving meaning so that the people understood what was being read. So there was somebody that God has gifted who can organize people to rebuild a temple. To get the plans and rearrange that. Then God raises somebody else to build up the people. And uh, to help to explain what the scripture says and to make it clear and give its meaning so that people can grow spiritually. And that person is Ezra. So you can say, well, then God in his sovereignty just did it. Or you can read this scripture. And what's it say? No, does it say God in his sovereignty just made Ezra do it and he didn't have any choice in it? No, it says this. For Ezra had set his heart to study the law of the Lord and to do it and to teach the statues and ordinances in Israel. That's what Ezra had chosen to set his heart at. And so God was able to use him to help his people to understand the word of God and to apply it in their life because he had set his heart to study it. Not only to study it up here, but to put it into practice, to do it himself. And not only do it himself, but to pass it on to other people. And so we need people in the church in every work of God, whether it's restoring the people to their own land or rebuilding a church or taking the church to the next stage. We need people who can organize and lead like Zerubbabel and Joshua. And we need people who can teach and expound the word of God. God in his sovereignty has said he will build his church and nothing will be able to stop it. His purpose is that he will have a church ready for his return. His purpose is that everybody in this world will hear the good news of the gospel. He wants everybody to hear about it. That's his purpose and plan in his sovereignty. But in his sovereignty, he has created us in love. And your part in that depends on your love's response to his call on your life. Will you obey that call to go back to the promised land like Zerubbabel and say, I'll go back. It looks dangerous. It looks hard. But we'll leave our comfort in Babylon and we'll head back. That call of God on Israel's life, will you set your heart to study the word and to know it and to explain it and teach it so other people can be helped by it?
And then there's Nehemiah. And God's purpose for Nehemiah was he needs somebody to build the walls of Jerusalem. And Nehemiah's back in Babylonia and word gets back from those who've gone before and they're, they're rebuilding the temple. The walls are still broken down and they're, they're still, you might say, these in danger of attack because the walls were their safety. And so God works in his heart and prompts his heart and he starts to pray about this and then an opportunity comes and he's before the king and the king wonders who you're not supposed to be sad in the presence of a king. And uh, suddenly the king noticed there was some sadness on his face. And so the king said to me, what is it you want? He first of all asked what's wrong and then what do you want? He's told him about the walls being broken down. What do you want? And then he says, then I pray to the God of heaven and I answered the king. Those two things go together. Then I pray to the God of heaven and I answer the king. So often in Christian work we go to two extremes again. All we have to do is pray. We don't have to do anything. Or we just do everything in our own strength. We don't need to pray. But puts both of those together. It's like the sovereignty of God and my response to the purposes of God. It, it's, it's prayer and action. It's not one or the other. This is a relationship with a person. Then I pray to the God of heaven, we need his help. But in this human world, this king is in a position to help me to achieve what God wants God's call in my life. And so I answered the king. And if it pleases the king, and if your servant has found favor in his sight, let him send me to the city in Judah where my ancestors are buried so that I can rebuild it. And then he gives him a list of all the things he'll need. And the king very kindly provides it all. Provides it all. I have a friend who's um, a pastor of a church down in South Australia. And uh, it's just exciting what God provided him. He, he came to know Jesus, he and his wife, in central Queensland in Blackwater. You know, I just thank God for the opportunity to, to have a little part in that. I remember his wife, she turned up under our house where we used to meet as a little church. You think this is small? You, you should have been in Blackwater. We were small, wasn't it, Tanya? Because Tanya was eight years old there. Her parents were there, and she used to be in the kids, kids section down the front when we were a long time ago. And Debbie came in and sat in that corner. I remember it because it was the first time I did say good day time. Done it ever since because uh, I've forgotten my message, and I used to do it all from notes, and it was upstairs in the office. So I didn't know what to do. So I said, everybody, could you please stand and say good day to somebody this morning and say hello, and shake the hand. There was no spiritual reason for it. <laughs> and while they were doing it, I shot out, ran up the stairs, quickly got my notes and came back down. And her response after the service was, oh, that, everybody came up and talked to me and made me feel at home. And, and uh, she, it was just, I thought, oh, goodness, I might have to do that again. And uh, so uh, we've been doing it ever since. But then... She just had a little baby, and she in hospital, she said, that's a miracle, he's got to be a god. And uh, so that started her journey of discovery, and then uh, we did an introductory study with both of them, and they came to know Jesus. And anyway, they uh, went back to South Australia. Because actually, I didn't know this, but they told me when we went back a couple of years ago to preach in the church, because they said people don't believe what we tell them about Blackwater and how we came to know Jesus. And they said... You're the reason why we don't have a lovely investment home up on the Sunshine Coast. And I say, how did that happen? She said, because when we told you that 
we'd done well in Blackwater back in the mining boom. We were going to go to the sunny coast and buy a house. And you said to us, I don't remember this. You said to us, have you prayed about that? And they said, we were just new Christians. We hadn't thought about that. No, we hadn't. So we decided we would. So we prayed about it. And then she said, we felt the Spirit of God saying, we should go back to South Australia because that's where our family is and they don't know Jesus. And somebody needs to tell them about Jesus. So that's why we don't have a house in the sunny coast. So I'm sorry about that. Uh, But God provided. And uh, they've built this church. And talk about God providing. There was this Greek guy who owned this owned the shopping centre. And um, they, he'd bought the shopping centre, the church had, very cheap, it was run down, and uh, they bought the shopping centre for their church. And uh, then this Greek owner and developer wanted it. And, uh, but they said, well, we believe God's called us to this place and we, we don't want to leave. And so they started negotiating. In the end, the developer said to them, I prayed to the God of heaven... And I spoke to the king in discussion with this developer. In the end, the developer said, look, I want that block of land. You want that block of land. I'll build you a church above the shopping center. You tell me what you want and I'll build it and I'll give you a million dollars on top of that as well for the land. And so you drive into the shopping center car park and you catch the lift up to church and the, I just love it. And the church is above it. <laughs> and uh, this lovely state of the art that uh, this developer built so he could have this block of land uh, for, his, um, for his supermarket and all the other shops that he's built there. I pray to the God of heaven. Uh, there's a lot more in that story and a lot of hard work behind it in that brief thing. Then I pray to the God of heaven and I answered the king. Then I answered the king. And so Nehemiah returns. But see that he doesn't do it on his own either. Even though he's the organizer and the arranger, and if you want to study a thing on leadership and organization, everybody goes to Nehemiah. And he gets everybody just doing a little bit of the wall outside their home. And so somebody does the fish gate, and somebody next to him repairs the next shift, and they're next to him, and they've got listed off all their names. And if it's one thing that we've tried to develop at Outlook, it's as if everybody does something, then everything gets done. Do you know what the general rule of churches is? They talk about the 80-20% principle. That is, 20% of the people do 80% of the work. How sad is that? How sad is that? 20% of the people do 80%. 20% are involved and 80% are not. Whereas here, for the walls to be built in record time. And at the end, you see in Nehemiah 6, because they realized that this work had been done with the help of God, that everybody took responsibility for their bit under the leadership of Nehemiah and his team. And it was done. So the wall was completed on the 25th of Elu in 52 days. It was incredible what could be achieved. In the sovereignty of God, God's purposes for the rebuilding and the bringing back of his people. But the love response of Nehemiah to the call of God in his life and everybody else getting in behind and doing their bit. Will I play my part for the purpose of God to be 
fulfilled. And then the last in this story, these Zerubbabel, these Ezra, these Nehemiah, they came back. But many were still in Babylonia. And this is where the book of Esther comes in. It's an interesting book. Not once is the word God mentioned in it, and yet it's in the Scriptures. But it talks about the sovereignty of God and the response of human beings, and it talks about a situation that made it possible to save the Jewish nation from one of its many times when it's been sought to be annihilated and genocide to happen. And it's under the leadership of Esther. Don't know whether you know the story. Good book to read sometime. Xerxes is the king and, uh, of uh, Babylonia, well, now Persia, Medes and the Persians, and it, Xerxes or Ahasuerus, uh, depending on uh, which term is used at the time, and uh, he puts on this great party with all his people um, because I think it was actually before he was going to try and attack the Greeks and try and uh, take over further, and he has this big banquet, and uh, he asks his queen Vashti to come in, and she realized they've been drinking for a long time, and she says no, and you don't say no to a king. You're very embarrassed by that, and so he banishes her. And then they have to choose a new queen, and uh, Esther gets into the choice, and end up she gets uh, chosen to be the new queen. But there is somebody in the king's realm by the name of Haman who hates Jews, because uh, Mordecai won't bow down and worship him because he will only worship the one true God. And so he makes a pact with the king. He will give him all this money uh, if he can uh, have an edict to kill all the Jews in the whole of the realm. So this goes through, and that's why Mordecai and the story we've read is in mourning and in sackcloth and ashes. And, uh, and Esther hears about it. And Mordecai says to Esther, who's now the queen, if you remain silent at this time, relief and deliverance for the Jews will arise from another place because God's sovereign purposes will be fulfilled. Perhaps, who knows, but that you have come to your royal position for such a time as this. Mordecai is saying, Esther, do you think it's just by coincidence that you were chosen to be queen? You're a Jewess. Perhaps have you ever thought that you are there at this time for this purpose? Have you ever thought that God has put you at this time in that job, this time in this church, this time? Do you see God's providence and God's sovereignty? Now I can cooperate with that and in love response and say, Lord, what's the part you want me to play here at Outlook in 2020? Lord, what's the part you want me to play here in this particular business that you've put me in or this workplace you've put me in? What's the part you want me to play? Because you have a purpose and a plan. But I can choose to be involved in it or I can reject it. The scripture talks about it as love and hate. To reject is to hate. Esau, have I loved? Jacob, have I loved? Esau, have I hated? Have I rejected? Why? Because the reverse was also true. If you remain silent, relief and deliverance will arise from another place. Perhaps you're here for such a time 
as this. Will I play my part? And so she says, go gather all the Jews in Susa, fast and pray. And I and my attendants will fast and pray as well. And then I will go to the king. Even though it's against the law, if you're not invited, the order is that you will be beheaded immediately. You'll be killed. Unless the king holds out his golden scepter. And so I haven't been invited, but I will go into the present. I will trust God and respond in obedience. And if I perish, I perish. That was a statement of faith. I will trust God. I will do what God says to do. I was talking to somebody after the service last Sunday and they were talking about the challenges in their work and being actually asked to lie about things and to put it in documents and saying, I can't do that. But then you become the enemy. If I perish, I perish. But I will do what God wants me to do. And Esther. Otherwise, if she didn't, Here they were redoing the land millions of miles away. She was playing her part because that edict would have affected everybody and the Jews right across the kingdom could have been annihilated and genocide could have happened. And sometimes we don't realize the impact that were happening. I had no idea that that young lady sitting in that back seat one day would be part of planning a church, a brand new church with a few hundred people meeting in South Australia. Who knows? If you realize God is in control, will I play my part? Lord, you've brought me here for a purpose, this place at this time. And the future might look black and the future might look bleak and it might not know what we're going to do, but I will trust you. That's why Corey Ten Boom, who was in the concentration camps in the Second World War, said, never be afraid to trust an unknown future to a known God. You like that? Never be afraid to trust an unknown future like Esther going into the king. To save God's people, to rescue God's people, I've got to go into his presence. I'm, I'm the best person. Mordecai is not in a position to do that. I have access I'm the queen. Sometimes we think our position in that business or in that company or in that community is by our own doing. Have you ever thought that maybe God's put you there for a purpose at such a time of this to be an influence for good and for God? How do I respond? In faith and trust and obedience to say, Lord, help me to play my part. Help me to play my part. Whether I'm a Zerubbabel building a temple, whether I'm an Ezra building up the people, whether I'm a Nehemiah building up the walls, with each one of those leaders it took a whole team around them to make it happen, or whether I'm an Esther feeling all alone, having to walk into the king and my life is in my hands, but knowing there's a whole team of others who've been praying for you and supporting you in prayer, because ultimately we're never alone and he is with you. But the bigger question is, don't just say, well, God will do it anyway. No, perhaps he's put you there for such a time 
as this, with the gifts and the abilities and the experiences you have to bring your gifting, whatever that might be, a Nehemiah gifting, an Ezra gifting, an Esther gifting, to bring about God's purposes at this time in this place. That's why next year, Warwick's going to do a course on discovering your shape in ministry. And part of that, how's God shaped me to serve him in this church? Let's pray. Father God, sometimes we think that our part is not important. Sometimes the evil one would try to tell us lies as if we have nothing to offer and nothing to give and no abilities and giftings because we always compare ourselves to someone we're not rather than trusting you for the person that you created us to be. So, Lord, thank you for the gifts and the opportunities and the places you've put each one of us. And we're there by divine appointment. And in your sovereignty, will we respond in love and obedience to your plan and purpose for us in the church, in the home, in the community? Will we have an attitude, Lord, I want to play my part, whatever that is. Whatever that is, I'm willing to play my part so that your purposes and your plan will be fulfilled in this church, in this city, and in this world. And we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.